Ja, yeah, warum? Should I say, hello, baby? <laughs> Welcome to Two Twins in an Album. I hope that you can all feel the weight on your hands right now. If you try and try and pull the weight up, you can feel, hopefully, two very, very heavy hearts. Indeed. Here on the podcast, as we check in with you with a sort of Last minute pivot here to make sure that we recognize and honor our fallen legend, Mr. Edward Van Halen. T, how you doing tonight? Doing pretty good. Certainly bummed. Um, you know, it's a it's a key loss uh, for rock and roll, and certainly for those of us who really grew up on this band. And uh, and to your point, we felt it right to. Uh, Turn on a dime, if you will, here on Two Twins in an Album and, and, and scrap our previous plan and pay the proper tribute to uh, not only the great Eddie Van Halen, but uh, a really, really good Van Halen record. So, Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting because, you know, we're going to, not to get too, like, you know, morbid here, but this is a reminder that those of us who, you know, are very passionate about music and particularly passionate about music from past decades, this is going to be the time where we start to see many of our heroes leave the world. Right. I mean, and and this is just kind of another at what I would consider the start of this. It's been extraordinary to see the reactions on social media and out and about. I mean, this one, even more than the last few, you know, kind of famous musicians, that we've lost, it does seem like this one is, is no pun intended, striking a chord a bit with many, many people and, and it's hitting people pretty deep. Don't you feel that when you see the reaction? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there was, obviously we lost some great ones kind of from the nineties era, you know, not too long ago when you look at, you know, Chris Cornell and when you look at, you know, Chester from Lincoln park and, you know, very, very well-known musicians and in many cases frontmen but i think the you know the loss of eddie is special because of the generations you know that van halen impacted you know it's certainly um people more in our i mean we're probably kind of the median you know i think there are certainly a lot of older people that were rocking in the you know late 70s and certainly throughout the 80s on this band it's a band that really helped introduce this you know us being sort of more of the MTV generation um to a lot of iconic you know music videos i mean obviously the jump video comes to mind first and foremost with these guys so big part of the MTV generation then obviously you know the the always great debate of you know Lee Roth v Hagar and you know it's a band that always spawned a lot of interest a lot of conversation and anyone that ever got the chance to see him live just a incredible energy at a uh, Van Halen show um, and obviously you and I were fortunate enough to do so but yeah it does seem like there were a lot of different age ranges a lot of different generations um, that really you know had a lot of respect for 
not just the band, but certainly Eddie's work as a guitar innovator, you know, a guitar hero, and, and certainly someone that contributed mightily to the um, ever-evolving sound of this band. And obviously one of the albums we're going to talk about tonight was part of that uh, evolution. And Eddie always had so much to do with that as far as what was being composed and what the instrumentation was to kind of treat that composition the best. And they were always working to to get that best sound based on um, what they were writing. And obviously Eddie had so much to do with that. I agree with 99% of everything you just said. Here's what I disagree with, that there is some sort of debate. I don't know what you speak of with this debate, <laughs> but there is no debate. Uh, it, it, it is Van Hagar. Okay. And I don't want to hear any other argument. There is no other <laughs> argument. There's no debate. Anyone who debates this is just, their head is in the clouds somewhere. So let's just square that away right off the bat. I do think it's interesting that when you and I talked, you know, minutes after the news came out, yeah. there was seemingly very little question about which album we were going to select. And to be fully, you know, transparent with our audience, we, we've both thought a lot about albums that we'll do in the future. And we both kind of have our lists. Well, on my list is Van Halen 3 which is the album that they did with Gary Sharon on vocals. And, and it's an album I love. And it's one that I, I wish people would give a fair shot at. Mm-hmm. It's actually a terrific Van Halen album. Uh, so that's one that I, I figured we'd always explore, you know? Yeah. But when it came time to do kind of a, a tribute show in this way, you know, it was 5150 all the way. Uh, after spending a little time with this album in the last 24 hours is quite a crash course. You know, you could definitely see why. But so then would you go um, Gary Sharon, followed by Hagar, followed by David Lee Roth? Is that is that what I'm hearing? No, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. You know, there, there's a couple of the Roth era albums, particularly in 1984, that I adore. I mean, I, I think 1984 is a top record. Diver Down's got some great moments. The first two albums are fun. But from a musical perspective, it, it truly is no contest. And it always cracks me up when people even debate this because probably they're, they're probably not musicians. And I don't mean to say that in any sort of elitist kind of way, but you know, if, if you're a really casual listener that just kind of listens to music to enjoy the experience, I could see how the David Lee Roth era is paramount, right? Because it's, it's sort of the, it's the fun. It's a lot of the hits and I get it. And David Lee Roth is a great personality and somebody who, you know, is an important part of the Van Halen story, obviously. But if you're a musician and you're into bands that can have a lot of different clubs in their bag, the Van Hagar era is clearly more diverse, but we'll, we'll talk a lot about the singers, but you know, you're always kicking to me as the resident drummer and having me discuss, you know, aspects of drummers, but just tell me a little bit from a guitarist perspective, what comes to mind with Eddie Van Halen and why, why him versus others in terms of how revered he is and, and how much everybody is honoring him now, just as a pure guitar player, what, what stands out to him and what's so unique about him? Well, just an innovator, right? I mean, just somebody who took the instrument and was able to create sounds that nobody had created before, you know, whether it was some of the tap method, you know, technique, you know, some of the harmonic technique, which obviously he was a master of. I mean, he was just able to squeeze sounds out of this six string instrument not necessarily from effects or pedals or any of those type of things but really with kind of unique 
playing using his hands in ways that just no guitarist in many cases had before and influenced a tremendous wave of guitar players that would come up and kind of provide, you know, some of their own take on a lot of technique that Eddie Van Halen set the foundation on. So a true, you know, pioneer with a lot of playing styles, a lot of sound creation. And, you know, it's funny, whenever I think of Eddie Van Halen, I I think certainly about him being an uh, an undisputed guitar god. But, you know, his keyboard work, and we'll get into it on this record, certainly, his contribution as far as synthesizers and keyboard sounds and that area of composition, which you started to hear even before Van Hagar, you know, and certainly on the 1984 album was where you got a lot of that kind of early synth approach. And that was Eddie. And so I think of him certainly as a guitarist, but you got to give him his fair shake as a musician and as a composer. A lot of those things, you know, when it comes to keyboard contribution, and there are some songs on 5150 that we'll get to where it's tremendously important. You know, a lot of those sounds hadn't been really made before too. So I think it went beyond just what he was able to do on the guitar and went into Again, approaching every album and approaching every era of this band, regardless of who the singer was, of how can I come up with a unique and innovative approach to this sound based on this composition? And he was really a master of that. Episode 16 is all about paying tribute to, like you said, the master. And let's see if you and I have any innovation in us as we take this thing around and round. Hit it. three albums on your radar and on your turntable what do you got well one that was just actually reissued um this week i think it's prince's best album you know if i had to pick it's a little tough because so many of his recordings were so uh spotty yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but i do think the double album sign of the times probably was his best top to bottom and uh, a great reissue of that uh both on vinyl and cd this week with some you know new tracks on it and some unreleased stuff and uh takes you back to just doing what I try to do a couple times a year at least. And that's just cruise YouTube for Prince jams, you know, and just find live clips of him just shredding on the guitar or performing, you know, obviously in ways that no one else could. So this reissue of sign of the times is, is really good. I think it's uh, his best recording. And I think they gave it a good treatment here on this reissue. I would have two albums from the mid nineties that might have something to say about that. But uh, did you buy the 12 disc $500 version or the four disc $200 version or the two disc $50 version or what what direction did you go? Cause I saw those packages and they were extraordinary. So I got the vinyl, which I think they um, reissued in like with like orange or peach or something colored vinyl. So I got that. And then I just got the double CD. So just the remastered um, 
you know, CD, um, which basically has the double album and then a few bonus tracks. So I didn't go too wild, but, uh, and you're right there, you know, the gold experience was a great Prince album. Um, the symbol album, the symbol album was good too. Yeah. So, but you know, this was kind of the prelude to that. This was kind of what brought you into that nineties era, which I do think was certainly his best era as far as recordings go. You know, no doubt. So, yeah, no doubt. Um, but a good record with some really good. I mean, again, it, it suffers a little bit from double album syndrome in some spots, but you know, all in all, I think it's his best one. The second was uh, it was recommended to me very recently by my good buddy Sean, who uh, I'm going to dedicate this episode to. He's one of our listeners, as well as runs a really great music and vinyl shop here in Celine, uh, where I live. But he was a huge Eddie Van Halen fan. He, in fact, he has a little Van Halen ink on himself, which is very cool. But uh, but shout out to Sean. And he recommended to me a Herb Alpert Presents. Obviously, we always kick off the show with a little Herb. By Sergio Mendez. This is the Brazil 66 um, project. It's been a really nice listen here uh, the last couple of days. And then for something completely different, the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds record, Dig Lazarus Dig, probably, probably my favorite by the, uh, by the Bad Seeds, if I had to pick a little bit more, I guess, upbeat for by Nick Cave standards um, on that, on that record. And um, yeah, probably my favorite top to bottom. And, you know, I try to spin through his work, you know, you got to do it in small doses. Otherwise you just get, you know, too bummed out. But, uh, but Dig Lazarus Dig is a, is a great record by those guys. And that's uh, what's round and round for me. How about you, Nub? All very tasty choices, as always, with UT. Uh, well, for me, uh, the first would be Queensryche's Empire, which, again, one of those albums that I've thought about doing here on, uh, on an episode. Just a killer album from kind of a prog metal pioneer. It's got Jet City Woman. It's got the title track. And, of course, it has Silent Lucidity. It's almost unfair that it's not talked about as one of the great albums of that era from a a really just excellent band, a band that has fallen apart in recent years due to business problems and a front man who's a bit of an egomaniac, but uh, Empire is a a certain classic. Throbbing Gristles, 20 Jazz Funk Greats, scored an original pressing uh, vinyl copy of that. Throbbing Gristle is a pioneer in kind of avant-garde electronic music. Weird stuff indeed, but um, pretty amazing material when you listen to it, especially for things that were coming out in the late 70s. And then, you know, kind of a follow-up from our last episode, I mentioned that I've been listening to a lot of Heart. Well, if you listen to some 70s Heart, you got to get into a little 80s Heart too. So the the 1985 self-titled album, which has Never and These Dreams on it, mm-hmm. um, you know, Heart, one of those bands that was great in the 70s and then you know, perhaps even better in the eighties. And uh, so really been digging that album as well. So a lot of stuff around and around. And of course we'll probably be listening to quite a bit of Van Halen here in the coming days and weeks. The biggest connection I have right now is when we lost David Bowie a few years back, there was just this feeling of, you know, celebration almost, you know, it's, it's so sad that they're gone, but if it's anything, if you're anything like me, T, on this topic, you just want to listen to the music a ton. You just yeah. really want to dive in and and even get into some of the stuff that maybe you didn't hear that wasn't as familiar. You know, I, I know when when Bowie died, and I'm a gigantic Bowie fan. You know, it thrust me into some albums and some listenings that 
maybe I hadn't, you know, really dove into before just because I wanted to continue to pay tribute. I feel like losing Eddie Van Halen is going to, you know, provide the same opportunity. Tonight, we're certainly not going to go very obscure. 5150 was a smash album, but it was an amazingly important album in this band's history. Uh, It's hard to think of this as a transition album because when you listen to it, it just sounds so in the moment and so ready-made. But this album came out of you know, a a tremendous amount of changes for this group, changes in, you know, producer changes in sound, but more than anything, a change in front band. I mean, this is the first album with Sammy Hagar and the first album without the, at that time, very beloved David Lee Roth. And so 5150 is going to provide a lot of conversation for us about this transition, but let's not lose sight of what this episode really is about it's it's paying tribute to Eddie Van Halen as a guitarist and as an artist and his work on this album to me is as good as any album Van Halen ever did you mentioned it it's not just as a guitarist it's as a composer and also as a keyboard player you know the, Van Halen was very much a band and we'll talk about that each member was vitally important to this group but Eddie still clearly was the guy that was you know c- kind of held the vision together of the band and to take the group into this next phase with 5150 is something that will be fun to dissect and a perfect album to pay tribute to, don't you think? I do. And you're right. Um, a definite transition period for the band. And there was a lot of pressure on the band. They had to come through with, with something pretty special here, you know, because it's easy to look back now and you have the Van Hagar debates and all those things that, that we've spent a lot of time doing already on this episode. In fact, it's not a debate. It's not a debate. There's no debate. There's no debate. Well, I'm with you, but, uh, but you know, at the time, if you can, you know, kind of take yourself back here to, you know, 1985, 1986, you know, time period, obviously you're coming off of an album that was tremendous for this band. And then all of a sudden, basically at their peak, you know, their commercial peak, the singer decides, you know, he doesn't need the band anymore. And, you know, that's very unique if you kind of put that in today's context. You know, you typically see, you know, those bands start to level off a little bit and then the singer might go solo or, you know, they kind of run their course. This was a band that was still in top form um, and probably, you know, had... Clearly, as we can see from the work that continued, they still had some things to do musically um, and as an outfit. So very, very interesting that they, you know, kind of found themselves in the situation to re-identify themselves. And to your point, they did so musically just as much as they did from a vocalist frontman standpoint. And I think that's really what um, will make this album a lot of fun to sort through. Let's sort it through by beginning with those nerdy deets done dirt cheap. Nerdy deets. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty deets? 5150 was released March 24th, 1986. The production was handled by Mick Jones. T, what band was Mick Jones in? Uh, I believe he was in the Rolling Stones. Do I have that right? No, that would be Mick Taylor. Oh, <laughs> but, but I, but good call on Mick. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. Was that who was that, who was that? <laughs> Wasn't that a Mick? 
Mick Jones is the guitarist from Foreigner. Ah. And the okay. dude who eventually sort of, you know, took over the band. It's even, I think it's now called like Foreigner featuring Mick Jones. So well, he was in Spooky Tooth then as well. Mick Jones was? I believe, right? Oh, all right. All right. So the album was produced by Mick Jones. Who, what, who wasn't in Spooky Tooth? Right. Yeah. Good call. Mick Jones, Don Landy, and Van Halen. I think what's key there is no Ted Templeton. And that's one of the things to remember about 5150. Again, transition in a number of ways. It transitioned Van Halen away from its longtime producer. The album was incredibly successful. Sammy Hagar says that the album went platinum within like a week or a month or something like that. But for being an album that needed to be successful, 5150 was absolutely successful. There's no question about it. It hit number one on the Billboard charts, which by the way, 1984, its predecessor did not. That actually peaked at number two. It's in a long list of albums that couldn't get to number one because number one was being completely taken up by this album called Thriller, which I can't, I've never heard of Mm. that album. I'm not sure. But some album called Thriller was taking up the number one spot for like, you know, 15 years or something like that. 5150 had five singles off of it. Why Can't This Be Love was the lead single released about a month before the album came out. And I think it's a key part of the story here. I think when that song came out, it kind of told everybody, hey, Van Halen's going to be okay, but they're also going to be a lot different, you know, because that's clearly a song that would never have a place on one of the previous albums. Yeah. Dreams, Love Walks In, Best of Both Worlds, and Summer Nights rounded out the rest of the singles. The album, certainly, uh, in my opinion, one of the most underrated parts of 5150 is the cover art. It has just a sort of, I know we use this word a lot in the podcast, but it's just like iconic image, you know, and, and Van Halen had a great brand logo mm-hmm. for the band. You know, you think about some of the great brand logos for bands. Yes. And some other bands. Well, Van Halen has that, you know, just trademark VH with the lines coming out of it. 5150's sleeve art just seemed to have this perfect capturing of of the band at that time yes it's just a like and essentially it's like this gigantic strong dude and virtually like a speedo banana hammock yeah yeah and a a banana hammock lifting this big old thing but i I don't know something about this this cover always makes me smile i don't know what it is but it just seems to fit perfectly all songs written by in typical van halen fashion by the band Uh, this was a band that did not separate out writing credits and get into that territorial thing. All tracks written by the band, Sammy Hagar, Eddie Van Halen, Alex Van Halen, and Michael Anthony. Of course, as we mentioned, this is the first with Sammy Hagar, but a huge part of the Van Halen sound, as all of us know, are the background vocals and the harmonies. And those are handled by Eddie Van Halen, obviously also the guitarist and keyboardist. And one of the true secret weapons, just in terms of the vocals, Michael Anthony. And we'll yeah. talk about his background vocals and his bass guitar. And then, you know, okay, time to talk about the drummer, as we always do in the podcast. Alex Van Halen on drums. Just one of my favorite drummers of all time. And yeah. one listen to 5150 and you you kind of see why he's, he's just terrific. Nine tracks and, um, and an album that just became, you know, incredibly important to the Van Halen story. And as we talked about with Russia's counterparts and some of their transition albums without 5150, we, we honestly might not be talking about Van Halen right here, right now. Yeah, I agree on Alex, you know, he, his drum tone and certainly his drum approach was always a really important part of this band's backbone, you know, and 
you know, while Michael Anthony's bass playing was always solid and, and, and usually always kind of matched for the most part, what was going on, you know, in sort of just basic rhythmic composition, you know, Alex really provided some important drum tones, um, some very unique, innovative drum sounds as well. Very important part of this band. And obviously with the two being, you know, brothers, you know, you could always get a sense for that chemistry, which was always really strong. But I agree with you that the composition coming from every band member, at least it being listed that way, I think really shows that Van Halen always had kind of a team first approach. You know, it was never about one guy or another trying to get too much credit. It always felt, you know, regardless of who was in the band at a given time, like a real collaboration. This is about the band. This is about us as a team. And this is about putting out a great product, yet regardless of kind of the time period or the sound that we're going for. And that's something that I always really liked about them. And certainly it's a very noteworthy part of 5150, you know, that uh, that the entire band contributed toward the composition on paper. It's an important observation by you. It's dead on. And think about, too, with a brand new member. Sammy Hagar was in the band for like three months when this album came out. I mean, this was a very late decision. By all accounts, Eddie couldn't find a singer. And the story is something like the dude who was fixing his Lamborghini, which, by the way, how 80s is that? <laughs> uh, like recommended Sammy Hagar, who, who was already very well established. He had done some solo albums and he was in Montrose, of course. Sammy Hagar was not like a new name. He was established. He was a professional. He had hits and stuff. I mean, he, he did before. Yeah, he did. And he came in and, and the band's professionalism really uh, is something that stands out here. The fact that they kept it a cohesive unit. Sammy has talked uh, in the, in the ensuing years about that, how that team approach really helped for the early days of Van Hagar to be so successful. And so I, th- I think it's a, it's a really important observation that you make. And by the way, uh, I, you know, you spoke about, you know, branding and, and the Van Halen brand. 5150 was almost this kind of brand in of itself. It was the name of Eddie's studio. It, it was and continues to be on a lot of their licensed, you know, product. I mean, they obviously put their names on a lot of pedals and a lot of amps and those type of things. And oftentimes that's under this 5150 branding. So they almost created um, not just an album, but sort of a, a brand within the band, you know, in of itself. Apparently it comes from the California Welfare and Institutions Code, uh, which refers to a mentally disturbed person. Section 5150. Um, so that's where they got this from, apparently. But um, but yeah, it kind of became this, you know, kind of intra-code brand um, for this band that you saw, certainly not just the title of, the, of this album, but used very often by the band in many ways. It's a great call. Yeah, this band really did marry the, the creative and the business very well. You know, they, they really did until much later in the career where, where sort of the whole thing fell off the rails and you had Roth coming back in and it's just, it's just weird. But <laughs> for, for a long time, Van Halen seemed to master that marriage between the business smarts and the creative prowess and, and 5150 is a shining example of that. All right, T, well, like many have done in the last you know, few days, uh, let's get into some wonder stories about Van Halen and, and learn each other's Van Halen stories. Run the wonder stories. 
Team, what's your Van Halen wondrous story? I mean, it really starts with the jump video. You know, that's, I think that probably many others, certainly within our age bracket, you know, that's, that's where it begins. And, you know, certainly they had put out some work before that with, uh, you know, a handful of albums prior to 1984, but that iconic um, video for a song that was such a big part of, you know, those that, I mean, we were four years old when it came out. But when you're an MTV kid, you know, that's, you remember that one. And whether it's Eddie playing the air keyboards or Lee Roth doing the splits. And I mean, there was just so many, uh, such a fun video because they were on stage, but there was no audience. So they were just kind of having fun with each other and, and with the camera and all those things. Um, Because, you know, David Lee Roth was just, kind of medium showman, you know, just kind of yeah. like the camera, just a real little meek, bit. real meek guy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but that, that was really where it started. And then, um, you know, you kind of go with the band through the Van Hagar era and all that. I got into the balance album quite a bit in the late nineties, which I thought was a good effort from those guys has some good tracks on it. And I remember digging into that one quite a bit. You know, which is obviously, you know, a few albums into uh, the Van Hagar era. And then obviously going to see them in concert. We saw them at Pine Knob. Uh, I think they were touring for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, I, I think. Or was it Balance? I'm not sure. No, it was, well, it was, they were really technically touring right here, right now, which was the live album. Okay, yeah. For, for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. So I, I still consider it that tour. It was a great era for the band. It really was. I mean, they were in top form. The, you know, I kind of touched on it earlier, but the energy of a Van Halen show was really tough to match. You know, at that time, their playing was spectacular. And Sammy is just an outstanding vocalist and he pulls it off live. I mean, I think that's something that David Lee Roth always struggled with was being able to kind of recreate vocally what what he was trying to do live. But Sammy is a flawless extremely talented vocalist that can still get up there and do it, you know, to this day, as we've seen, uh, you know, as he's hanging out selling tequila and, you know, hanging out in Cabo Wabo and all that. <laughs> he's got a good life. Yeah. yeah. He's done it. Sammy Hagar's done it right. You know, but part of that is he's been able to perform. He's been able to pull it off and he, uh, he is a really, really good vocalist and, and hearing them live in that era and being able to, to go, experience uh the the sounds and the ambiance of a van halen show at that time was really special so those are kind of some of my top memories um how about yourself nub what do you got on the uh on your van halen wonder story i mean as you well know i you know i was with you for all of those things and the the jump video was vital but i think when i really started taking this band seriously and as you know i'm a, a pretty big van halen fan but where I really started to take the band seriously was for unlawful carnal knowledge. Yeah. I mean, that album came out at a time where I was really getting into music in more of a passionate way and less of a passive listening kind of way. I remember I bought the cassette because um, I really liked pound cake and mm-hmm. some of the things that I was hearing. And, and, and that album was really important and it set up, you know, a, a really strong loyalty to the band that lasted a long time. I think the only big difference between you and I Really, there's probably two. One is the Van Halen three era that, that I really got into and was so bummed when it sort of, you know, 
also fell apart because I, I think there was such potential there, but I do love that album. And the other difference probably is I was able to see them a second time on the 2004 reunion that they did with Hagar. Mm, yeah. Which was a, a really fantastic show. It, nice. was jo- it was at Joe Lewis arena in Detroit, which is now dust, you know, but um, it, it was a reminder of kind of the magic of the Van Hagar era. And they played a, a really strong set. The song selection was outstanding and, you know, Sammy sounded great and Michael Anthony was spot on and, and Eddie was, was a little rough at this time. He, he, this was maybe the beginning of some of his significant health problems. He didn't look very good mm-hmm. and his playing was, you know, a little bit all over the place, but it was still Eddie, you know, it was still seeing the band. And of course, Alex was spot on with his like triple bass drum, drum set or whatever <laughs> that drum set he plays it needs its own zip code i think (laughs) but uh cool setting and a cool chance to see really the last run of of van hagar which was that 2004 tour so huge fan as as so many are and it's it's a band that means so much and and you know some bands lose members and can press on and but van halen obviously won't i mean eddie's such a significant part and now we have these these albums to continue to cherish and continue to treasure. And that's what we'll do right now. T let's drop the needle, get into 5150. All right. See, it's like they wanted to introduce Sammy to the world without wasting a second. So <laughs> what's the first thing you hear when you, Drop the needle in 5150. What do you hear? Give me, give me your best rendition of it. Hello, baby. <laughs> that was pretty good, man. <laughs> oh, dear. That was pretty good. That was You going to do one? Oh, baby. Come I on. don't think I don't think I can match yours, but uh, <laughs> hello, baby. Yeah. That was better. That was better. You you win. You win. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good enough. Kicks off 5150. Let's go. Hello, baby. It's a jam, baby. And it's certainly, I think with good enough, they're basically saying we're still here. We're still Van Halen because the album will start to take more twists and turns from a sonic perspective and a composition perspective. But good enough sounds like it could have been on the previous, you know, four or five albums, but still a little different twist with Sammy. But how do you, how do you feel about the way this album opens? I mean, it's great. How how does Alex get that drum sound? I mean, it is so unique. I haven't heard anyone be able to recreate it. I don't know if it's a production thing or a room thing or an effect thing or a tone thing. How does he, how does he get that sound? That's very unique to him. It's a great question. They, you know, they, the Van Halen camp has always been a little secretive about exactly how it's achieved. Two things. Number one, remember drummers have tone too. You know, we always talk about guitarists and their tone and their tone. Drummers have tone too. It's just like any other musical instrument. Your personality comes through in the way you play. And Alex has a clear personality in the way he plays. He's got a very strong right foot in terms of his kick drum. And he's got a snare sound because he's really consistent with his left hand, but make no mistake, just from a pure production standpoint, they're using some drum triggers and things like that, that, mm-hmm. that make that sound what it is. I mean, those, that, that is not how normal acoustic drums 
sound. So one of the cool things Van Halen did, they were really pioneers in combining the human feel of Alex with some electronics and some triggers and some technical things that they were able to do to achieve that sound. But yeah, that, that opening drum fill, it's just like, whoa, that's Alex Van Halen, unmistakably. And the, were the Roto-Toms a part of that too? I mean, I, I know that he was using those pretty heavily around this time. I know he was on the previous record. Yeah, he, his Tom sound is a variety of different things. Number one, he plays very big drums. So, um, And they use a ton of EQ. I mean, the production on his drums are, are heavy. But yeah, there's some Roto-Tom stuff and... Uh, you know, his drum kit is, is like I said, it's like a city. I mean, it's huge and it wraps around him in lots of different sounds. So yeah, yeah. Alex is vital. Well, that's kind of always what jumps out at me on good enough. And it's obviously the case throughout most of this album is you just kind of say, man, I love that drum sound. But, you know, to your point, I think uh, if you're popping in 5150 back in 1986, kind of saying, hmm, let's see what this Hagar guy is all about. You know, you it, it it takes you about five seconds to realize that you know he's going to bring the energy. He's he's got the goods and he's got the attitude that you know is probably going to be a nice fit with this record. I think good enough is a nice way to start it. It's almost as if the band wanted to say, okay, we could still jam and kind of be the party band, but pretty quickly we're going to show you some of our new tools that we are able to use musically and a perfect choice to. Continue 5150 with Why Can't This Be Love? It's got what it takes. So tell me why can't this be love? Straight from my heart. Oh, tell me why can't this be love? What a blend of, of power and like incredible sensitivity, right? Like if you really listen to the essence of the song, you know, Sammy's almost like yearning during these verses and even during the chorus. I mean, he's almost like begging, right? Yet the song has such a strong backbone musically and it has such power to it. I mean, you know, the power ballad is this thing that people talk about, but why can't this be love is just a, a great combination of, of, of kind of a sensitive theme with true rock groove that you can kind of tap your foot and bop your head to. Uh, where does this song fit for you? Yeah. I mean, Sammy had a very um, deceptive amount of depth. You know, I think you see him and he kind of runs around on stage and he's got that iconic voice. And obviously, you know, later in his life, he's become kind of the party guy um, to his credit. He's done it right. But um you know, some of the things he had to say and some of the concepts he, you know, got across lyrically had a lot of feeling to him, you know, and, and you see that throughout the catalog. You see that throughout the Van Hagar catalog is certainly there are moments where they're just having fun lyrically and, and he was good at that. But there are a lot of moments on this album that are certainly beyond just substance kind of rock and roll surfacey type stuff. And it, blends really nicely with a lot of the musical approach. And I think why can't this be loves perfect because it is a very, um, it was a very unique song at the time in the way that the thunderous, you know, sort of drum beat from Alex and the keyboards and those layers. And then this kind of unique guitar work, which is acting as much like a synthesizer as it is a guitar in many cases. And very unique sound, very, very unique sound that you weren't hearing a lot at this time. So 
certainly, you know, you, you got to track one and realize that they were going to be just fine with Hagar. I think a lot of people got to track two and said, well, not only are they going to be just fine, but they're really going in a new and unique direction because, you know, David Lee Roth had his things that he was really good at to your earlier point. There's no way in hell he could have sang the song. No, There's no way in hell no. he could have performed the song. Not even possible. Um, yep. So, you know, the fact that not only did they align themselves with a great vocalist, but they showed, and I give Eddie a lot of credit on this, a real ability to say, okay, now that we've got this vocalist, how do we take advantage of it? How do we maximize this with our composition? And a song like this is, uh, you know, right away here on track two of this, you're getting the idea that these guys said, you know, we're going to really flex our, our muscle with what we have right now from a creative forward thinking musical composition standpoint. And certainly we're going to take advantage of this really unique wonderful vocalist that we now have, um, which in many cases they didn't really have the luxury of before. I can't even describe just how much Eddie is crushing it musically on this song. I mean, the, the keyboard work is so perfect yeah. for the feel of the song, but you got to be reminded sometimes of Eddie's almost classically influenced composition. I mean, it, it, listen to you. In 1986, a song that had, I mean, that's almost like an orchestral melody. I mean, you could hear that on a violin. You could hear that on strings. And then to kind of get into something, I mean, that's almost like a... That's almost like a hip hop beat. I mean, yeah. if you just think about the pure groove of it, yeah. And then all of that gets into this whoa, 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 boom, bam. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, this song it just has incredible rhythm. In this song, you're kind of just getting the whole experience. But to me, this is just all Eddie, you yeah. know. And, and his fingerprints are all over this song, and in just amazing ways. And this must have been pretty mind blowing for those who thought they knew what they were going to get from the new Van Halen album and then heard this. And think about just how well this holds up. I mean, you're not, this does not sound like 1986, you know, and with one of my favorite phrases that you've coined on the old podcast here and festival rock and some of these things where you're looking at layering and you're looking at keyboard and synth and all these things and sort of combining them with this rock pop sound. I mean, this is it. And this is um, 35 years ago. So um, very, very innovative and a sound that just completely holds up. I mean, we were just, you know, even the bit we played just then, I mean, would you guess that that's a 35-year-old song? I mean, absolutely not. In its pop sensibility and its layering. And to your point, the combination of all of these very musical factors uh, capped off by a great vocal by Sammy. I mean, definitely. From a song that will probably hold up forever to a song that probably won't and probably hasn't already, probably the low point of 5150, Get Up. You know, once an album, Van Halen always had to, like, do this, you know... Slayer meets Elvis thing, which, you know, let's see how fast we can play. Let's show off our chops and all that. And 
it, it never really turned out well. I think Get Up is a good example of where this uh, often went wrong when they would try and do this kind of style. Well, Alex, you know, he wanted to play the hot for teacher beat like more than just on one album. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems like every album they kind of say, oh, let's do the uh, let's do the hot for teacher ish thing, you know, with the upbeat. And I mean, you know, there's some cool stuff there if you're just kind of really, really rocking. You know, if you're pulling into the parking lot of the Van Halen show and and you want to, you know, roll down the windows and blast something, you know, it can work okay for that. But, but yeah, I agree. Probably the, uh, you know, we just talked about depth with Why Can't This Be Love. Probably not a ton of musical or lyrical depth on, <laughs> yeah. on Get Up, but, uh, you know, it does, it does what it needs to do there on track three. What it really does is set up uh, undoubtedly maybe the best track in Van Halen's entire catalog, which is uh, track four, Dreams. There's no disputing whether Dreams is... You know, good or not? Um, yeah. Has has anyone ever said like, "I don't"? Dreams is not a good song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you would, you know, hesitate to use this word in any art form, particularly music. But is Dreams a perfect song? Um. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, what does I, it? I think it is. It? I think it is. I mean, the outro's spectacular. You know, the middle section is just, I mean, Eddie's just wailing guitar and that is. Oh, what a solo. Just I mean, so yeah, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's perfection. It's, uh, you know, it combines the sort of the piano layering that Van Halen got so good at. Um, it's extremely musical. You know, it, 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 to your earlier point, I mean, this classical, you know, almost symphonic kind of influence that they always had in their sound and i think eddie always had in his approach you know just really comes out in this song this is one of those um you know you made the uh, dolly willie rule famous here on the old podcast here and i think that applies here in that it's a song and a melody that i mean you could see somebody play this solo piano and be you know blown away by the composition um you can you know have somebody do a different sort of genre take on a song like this and have it be great. You know, I mean, it's just, I, I do think it's a perfect song. I think it's a, I think it's a good call to kind of put it in that, um, in that category. Certainly when you factor in all the instrumentation, a really wonderful vocal from Sammy um, and sections that are just each iconic in their own way. Amazing. You say that because written in my show notes right now, next is the Dolly Willie rule. Right. For review, that <laughs> oh, yeah. a song so good that Dolly Parton and or Willie Nelson could cover it and it would still be, you know, amazing. Dreams is definitely one of those. It, I to me, the structure is is perfect, but it's the intricacies. You know, it's mm-hmm. the the guitar solo and the way it comes in and out. I love the part where Sammy sings the last chorus and the last time he says higher, his voice goes higher. Mm-hmm higher and higher i mean it's just Mm -hmm. it's so cool beautiful and the dry your eyes part i mean what's going on there rhythmically with the melody on top of it is just it's just so 
It's so much synergy. I mean, it's so perfect. Well, and Alex and Michael are just pounding that part. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is such a cool backbone to, to what they're doing in those little interludes there. Yeah. And then to your point about the ending, Sammy finds that again, that kind of more sensitive vocal with the, and in the end, you know, that whole last section, and it just, I mean, it just gives you chills. It's like, yeah. you know, I can't think of a more complete song. And so as we think about each of our top five Van Halen songs, and let, let's think about that oh, here. Okay. Can we just say dreams, like a no dreams rule? Can we say that? Yeah, I'm good with that. I'm good okay. with that. I, I think that would bring some integrity to the list because not only is dreams... Uh, clearly a top five Van Halen song, but I mean, dreams might be one of the best 20 songs of all time. I mean, it's just an incredible song. We can go no dreams. That's good. And so let's go kind of one by one. A lot of times we share out our top five and then we echo that. So, okay, let's go one by one. So what would be your first choice? Well, Uh, and it doesn't mean it's one through five by ranking, but what would be? Yeah. So do you have any David Lee Roth era? I have one. So why don't we go whatever Lee Roths you have, okay. followed by whatever Van Hagar's you have. And do you have a Gary Sharon? I do. Oh, okay. Well, I do. Well, let's get the Lee Roths uh, uh, going first. I have two, actually. And the first is uh, off their second record, the last song, uh, Beautiful Girls, which is probably my favorite Eddie riff of all time. Uh, and you know, more than anything, it's, uh, it really takes me back and reminds me of, uh, the, uh, SNL commercial for Schmidt's gay. Schmidt's uh, gay. Is, I, I knew that's why you chose it, <laughs> I love which it. is one of my all time favorite pieces of comedy. Um, but the, the fact that beautiful girls is playing, uh, on that sketch just uh, makes it very memorable, but just from a pure song and pure guitar lick standpoint, I don't know how it gets much better than that one. I like the choice. And, uh, Love me some Schmitz gay, you know, reach for a tall, cool bottle of Schmitz gay. (laughs) So So, good. So my lone uh, Roth era selection is so clearly one of my top five Van Halen songs. To me, it's the best song. It's the most complete song of the Roth era off 1984. And that's I'll wait. It's one of the early incorporations of the synthesizer. Um, In fact, the synthesizer drives the whole song. And David Lee Roth delivers a vocal that he never did before and never did since. I just, (laughs) I've always loved I'll Wait. I think it's one of the best songs they did. Well, my second choice is I'll Wait. Um, Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Same reasons. I mean, it was a, it's a really unique song, particularly at that time. This was 1984 album, obviously, like you said, and it's a different sounding song, even though you had jump, which was very synthesizer heavy. You had a lot of other, you know, times within that album where that was really featured. I'll wait was a very unique, very cool composition at that time. And and I agree. It's, it's probably Lee Roth's best vocal. Um, so that would be my second. And that, that closes out my Lee Roth uh, section of the top All right. five. All right. I'm up next then. And that would be the, Sharon era contribution, which is the song Without You, which is not the opening track on Van Halen 3, but it's the first actual song. And it is just a quintessentially awesome Van Halen song. It starts with a big drum sound from Alex Van Halen and the middle section breaks down into a, a, you know, just fabulous Eddie Van Halen solo. 
And uh, I love Without You. And I really, really enjoy the Van Halen 3 album, but this is clearly the high point of it. So I guess my question for you based on that is, number one, do you even know that song? And number two, if you do, do you like it? I don't actually. So, so props to you for, for having something from Van Halen three in your top five. I don't know that album terribly well. Um, I, you know, you can classify me as one that um, I would certainly give it a chance, but I haven't really given it an opportunity, you know? So, um, so Hey, maybe in the future, that's, it's one that will, uh, that we'll dig into to your earlier point. But, uh, but I do not know that track, but I will be checking it out. Well, I'll tell you what, T, you got plenty of time during the uh, pandemic, why don't you pick up a CD copy for a penny? Cause you could find yeah. about 300 copies for a penny on Discogs and go enjoy yourself. Yeah. The, su- the supply and demand on that one kind of works in the uh, consumer's favor. Yes, you know? it certainly does. You got yeah. it. You got it. Yeah. What's your number three? My third one would be um, something uh, off this album, which is love walks in. I won't dive into it too much cause I know we'll get there. So that would be my third. It's a great third. And yes, I look forward to talking about that one. My third is off for unlawful carnal knowledge and it's Runaround, which has one of the great Eddie Van Halen riffs and a chorus that's memorable. But the pre-chorus is where it really stands out. When I saw him in 2004 at Joe Louis Arena, Michael Anthony actually sang those pre-choruses by himself. If you remember Van Halen, they always did these things where like uh, Michael would sing lead for a a brief segment or even Eddie and Michael would sing a couple leads and uh, Sammy, like, you know, dropped out during those parts on run around and Michael Anthony handled them solo and it sounded really cool. So run around is, is my number three T what is your number four? Nice. Um, my fourth that some may consider a perfect song, certainly one of Van Halen's best and it's a little bit cliche because it is extremely popular, but a good song is a, is a good song and it's making my top five because it's just incredible and similar commentary than we had on dreams. And that's right now off of, uh, for unlawful carnal knowledge. Hey, nobody's going to fault you for that choice, man. That's a good choice. <laughs> my number four is, uh, when it's love off of OU812, which just happens to be the follow-up to 5150, which is what we're talking about here. Um, again, kind of continuing that, love song ballad sort of idea, but you know, you can label it whatever you want, but really just a fantastically well composed song with a strong chorus and memorable verses and kind of an extension of some of the songs we'll talk about here on 5150. So when it's love is my fourth. All right, T what rounds out your top five? What's number five? Well, I'm going from the same album as you on OU812 and this is feels so good. Just an extremely fun yet very musical song from Van Halen with great layering and great groove and a really nice keyboard uh, riff underneath the verse sections. I I love that song. I think it is just a really, really good dynamic uh, Van Halen song. That's a lot of fun. And this is where you see Sammy just kind of having a good time lyrically and vocally, but uh, that's one of those, you know, summertime you're outside hanging out, having some frothy beverages or whatever it may be. And, and it provides a, a great soundtrack. So feel so good off of OU812 rounds out my top five. Well, that's really interesting, T, because my number five is feels so good. Off is of it OU812. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the pre-chorus uh, is what really stands out to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, just 
I'll send a message. Yeah. Really good. And great synth stuff. You know, yeah. the, the more synthesizers they used to me, the better. So yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, look, there's no debate. It's Van Hagar. <laughs> I mean, come on, look at our top fives, right? All right, well, let's continue this Van Hagar love fest with a song that always reminds me of a location more than a time, and that is Summer Nights. I think that's the note right there. I mean, this, first of all, the place that this song reminds me of T is none other than Pine Knob Music Theater. Mm, yeah. I, every, nice. every time I hear the song, it just reminds me of Pine Knob because it's like everything they're sort of describing is like reminds yeah. me of summer nights. And when I think of the best summer nights, they're, you know, going to shows at Pine Knob. But nice. Um, to me, it, it all builds towards just that one note. I was glad you played that clip to enter the chorus. You know, just that boom, summer yeah. nights. You know, it's just a very, I mean, it's, it's total pop stuff, but um, I think it's a really cool composition. How do you feel about summer nights? Well, I, yeah, I, I think that section just shows, I mean, that's, that's Eddie just absolutely working it. I mean, he's, he's playing chop, he's playing tap. He's, you know, you're getting kind of within that 10 second time period. Um, everything that he did so well. You know, and uh, yeah, I think Summer Nights is a, is, a, is a beauty, you know, great way to come off of dreams with something kind of fun and kind of a little bit more relaxed, but, uh, but still hits you over the head with a ton of musicality, particularly that guitar work. Track six, and at this point, they're just sort of showing off <laughs> and Eddie just truly showing off his riff meister capabilities on Best of Both Worlds. a pretty open song you know it almost reminds me of like um it's like a kinks riff you know it's just it's this wide open strummy sort of thing yeah but uh best of both worlds a great live song for van halen for sure this is one that you know made a lot of set lists for them for good reason and just a trademark killer eddie solo um, halfway through the song, but it's all about the riff, you know, and that, and that's the thing about Eddie that you got to remember is the dude just wrote amazing riffs. And this riff almost, like I said, it's like more of a kinks, almost like ACDC sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's very simple, you know, this riff could be made into a ton of different genres, right? I mean, this riff could be like a disco song. It could be like a, you know, like a more of a dancey sort of beat. It'd be like a metal thing. And obviously it's like, they, uh, it's like cool in the gang. It's like, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Celebration. Right, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. It has that feel. Exactly. Um, I think another big highlight to this one is Michael Anthony's harmony in the chorus. Oh you yeah. Know, it just yeah. wouldn't be the same chorus without him sort of topping off, um, with those high harmonies. And yeah, to your point, it's a simple song that only certain bands could make sound really dynamic. And that's, that was some of the beauty of a lot of Van Halen stuff was even when it became pretty simple, um, it still sounded dynamic. And that was just because of 
musicianship and layering and all the things that, you know, they really, really did well. Do you think in music class, Michael Anthony, like only stayed awake on the day where they taught eighth notes and just fell asleep on every other day? You know, know, Michael Anthony's a, you know, obviously a lot of people kind of poke fun at him for, I mean, listen, he's running around with the mullet and the beard and he's kind of stocky. I mean, he's kind of a goofy guy, but very important to this band, not just vocally, which clearly that was very important in many cases, but I think he knew what his role needed to be. You know, he didn't need to be out there doing you know, less Claypool stuff or, or Getty Lee stuff. You know, he needed to lock in with Alex. He needed to provide that backbone. And he did so very nicely. It's it's as much, you know, some some band members are not just great because of what they're able to add, but some of them are great in the way that they're able to sit back and and create space. And when you've got Alex and you've got Eddie and you've got a vocalist like Sammy, your job is to be the workhorse and to kind of let these songs breathe and and expand. And uh, so it was important, if nothing else, to have a guy who sure seemed like a good time, you know, seems like just a rock oh, yeah. and roll, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. a good guy. Um, if you want to hang with a guy in Van Halen, you're hanging with Michael Anthony. It's probably Michael Anthony, yeah. And uh you know, without that ego and had that ability to kind of, you know, ride shotgun at times, which for this band was really important. So, you know, I think uh, anyone who gives Michael Anthony a hard time for his bass playing or or any of that, uh, you know, doesn't probably fully understand the importance of band dynamics and people knowing their lane and knowing their role because Michael Anthony executed that as well as anybody. And it, I think it was important to the longevity of this group. Well, he let Alex be Alex. I mean, Michael Anthony is the true backbone just rhythmically of the band. That foundation that he set with his playing was really solid and really reliable. And Alex was then able to sort of freelance a little bit more behind the drum kit. All right, we get near the end of the album. And uh, this is a song that by Sammy Hagar's account was incredibly important to him understanding what this new direction was going to be. And, and he describes it as, you know, this, uh, a beautiful composition that Eddie rolled out to him and that is love walks in. Again, like there is no possible scenario where David Lee Roth could have, even comprehended this song, let alone sing it. <laughs> and so it, it's a really great example of, you know, the things they could do with Hagar that they couldn't do previously, but it, it, it sort of follows dreams in a way. I mean, it's just a, it's just a beautiful song. You know, it, it, anybody could have covered this song. Van Halen, if they, you know, if the band thing didn't work out, they, they sure could have made it as songwriters for other artists if they wanted to. It, yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, it is. And I think that they captured the, the synth effect perfectly as far as how they wanted that to sound. And everybody just did their part. And Sammy doesn't oversing this. You know, he kind of just goes yeah. with what he was given. And I think, again, these guys, because it was so collaborative and because it was such a team effort, 
it seems like everybody knew when to sit back and everybody knew when to go hard. And on this one, I think that Sammy just treated it perfectly. Now the song's about a book about aliens or something. It's, it sounds like this kind of romantic song, much like, um, you know, track two, but it's actually on its face. Uh, it seems romantic, but it's really about something different. Is that right? I do remember when when Sammy introduced this song at the show we were at, and, and he had been, he had clearly been doing a bit of uh, indulging in the evening. Um, so who knows really where his head was at? But yeah, he introduced this with song about an alien or something like that. And so yeah, there was there was some kind of complexity to this. And I'm not sure if if Love Walks In is is in this category, but um, one of the things too to remember about Sammy is that. He was a, a more than competent guitar player. And again, yeah. you know, they traded a, a front man for a musician when they went th- from Roth to Hagar. And when Hagar came in and opened them up to do some things live, and I don't know if Love Oxen is in this category, but I know for Why Can't This Be Love, Eddie would actually play keyboards on stage and Sammy played guitar and he played the guitar solo on Why Can't This Be Love. And I think Love Oxen was in the same category. But regardless, Hagar being able to play guitar allowed the band to not only pull songs like Love Oxen and Why Can't This Be Love off in the studio, but, but live as well. And, uh, and you saw Eddie become more fascinated with keyboards and I think the fact that Sammy was a very you know, competent and then some guitar player helped with that. But yeah, there, there was certainly some kind of lyrical theme here that was a little, a little off the beaten path, but that kind of added, added to its charm, didn't it? Yeah, agreed. And I am a uh, horrendous piano player uh, by ear, and I can pretty much only play the white keys. Um, those black keys on top, just, you know, you got to stretch your hands. It's a very, you know, I just, <laughs> yeah, it's too much work with it. Yeah. Uh, but there are uh, two songs that I specialize in. Whenever I sit down at a piano and I want to make it seem like I know how to play, I, I either do uh, don't look back in anger by Oasis or love walks it. By very Vance. nice. So, very nice. You know, it provided me some opportunities to really uh, in a very um, fraudulent manner, you know, pretend like I know uh, my way around a piano. And which, uh, which in essence, woos the ladies, right? I mean, uh, that's really what you're going for here. Every- well, listen, uh, Love Walks In has helped me close a couple deals. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling it helped the band close a couple deals, too. <laughs> yeah. Let's close the deal of 5150 with the last two songs, one of which is one of the great album tracks the band ever did, and the other is just a weird closer. Let's start with the <laughs> former 5150. what do you think of 5150 the song yeah i dig it you know it's uh, it's certainly an album track um but you know like the groove and like the changing tempos that you get throughout really good vocal by sammy you know i think that's one of the highlights of it but yeah i think it's a nice way to kind of get you toward the end of this one in a way that I liked when Van Halen at times, you know, weren't trying to be commercial with some of their album tracks, you know, where they knew like, this isn't going to be a hit, but this is going to be something that, you know, kind of broadens things out or kind of expands us in a way musically. And I think in this one, you get groove, you get chop and you get a great vocal. So uh, yeah, I I think 5150 is a nice track. 
It's sort of the like Van Halen tries prog thing in a way with the rhythmic changes. I love the way it cuts time in the verses. I think that's really cool. It's really effective. It clocks in at five minutes, 44 seconds. So, and and that's one thing I've always loved about this band. You know, they were not doing like the, the three minute thing, you know, they were able to extend musical ideas and they weren't afraid to have intros and mm-hmm. outros. And they were absolutely not afraid to have a song that was more than five minutes long, which in the mid eighties and what was going on with rock radio was not necessarily safe. Right. Uh, but yeah, 5150 has got some nice musical adventure to it. When their album tracks went right, it was this sort of sense of adventurism when they went wrong. It was more like the get up kind of, you know, let's be a party band sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really, uh, I think it's a really strong title track and an important part of the end of the album because the album ends with one of the strangest closing tracks <laughs> I think I've ever heard in every way. And it has a lot of potential. It's got some things about it that are interesting, but, but, but a, a rather bizarre closer in inside. Yeah. And, it, and it rightly so just kind of falls apart at the end. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Yeah. Rightly so is right. You know, it, it, it takes this really cool synth riff, which has a nice foundation, but all the kind of bizarre stuff they're doing with vocals on top of it and a lot of the talking. And I'm not sure exactly where they were going with this. And it, it's a kooky way to end an otherwise yeah. really smooth yeah like album i mean this album just coasts along tracks one through eight and i don't know if it was an experimental thing or if they were just having a bit of fun with everything or maybe just taking a piss you know with this last track but it (laughs) it certainly doesn't capture the the depth of the rest of the album but you know van halen was a fun band with a sense of humor and maybe they were just going for something a little bit different but but in the but musically it does have a really strong synth riff to it it's just what they did with that riff is is a little out of this world yeah i i agree i think maybe they just kind of felt like you know one thing about the band is they never wanted to be boxed in you know they they never uh you know, they never wanted to be, if they wanted to get kind of wacky, get wacky, or if they wanted to get experimental, get experimental or, and it seems like they just kind of figured at the end of this very, to your point, this very polished, pretty damn commercial effort um, that they just wanted to kind of slap something together and have some fun and get a little weird with it. And, uh, and they were never afraid to do that. And Hey, you know, on a record like this, that's perfectly okay. It was commercial and it was important, but T, let's go into the does it matter. So 5150, this pivotal Van Halen album, T, does it matter? I think it mattered a lot, you know, not just to this band, which clearly was having to prove itself in a way that this transition was going to work. But this overall sound and this incorporation of synth into rock, um, which wasn't the first time it had happened, but it was certainly the first time where it happened to a certain audience or for a certain radio format, you know, and some of these songs, you know, whether it's dreams, which is a little bit more of a driving kind of fist pumper or whether it's love walks in, which is 
a bit more sentimental and mid-tempo or why can't this be love which just says top 40 single written all over it this element of not just saying you know we're kind of a new band with a new singer but saying we're a new band with in a lot of ways a new sound um that was very well received and i think very influential and very innovative and that's the beauty of, uh, I think, what everyone really respects about Eddie Van Halen and his his career and his life as an artist was his ability to just constantly be innovating. And I think 5150, in addition to being very commercial, in addition to being, you know, meet Sammy Hagar for a lot of people, and in addition to the band having some pressure on itself to kind of prove that they were going to be able to prevail in this second era for them. A lot of very creative, very influential sounds being made here that in a lot of ways have been replicated since, but at the time uh, were very, very unique and everything holds up. I mean, these songs, a couple of them made our top five and, and certainly, you know, as I sort of touched on earlier, these tracks hold up incredibly well. This was a sound that was not just of its time in 1986. This is a sound that is lived on and more people than you think are currently influenced by this a lot of the alternative sort of alt nation festival rocky type sound that you hear today a lot of this came from a band like van halen being able to say we're going to incorporate synth keys and layers on top of a very strong sturdy rock and roll presence and i think 5150 was really important in that regard how about you what do you think did it matter it matters because we're still talking about Van Halen. I mean, it's important for people to remember that the label pressured the band to not even call this Van Halen. I think they wanted to treat it like a brand new band, mm. but they carried on and it just added to the allure and, and kind of the legendary aspect of the band. And we're probably not talking about Van Halen today without 5150. And I think with everything you said, and you said it you know, perfectly, it's that continued marriage in all art, but certainly in music of the, the sort of the masculine and the feminine, right? The, these different energies and Van Halen became an incredibly popular band with female fans. And that was a huge, you know, 5150 was a huge part of that. And the, com- the combination of the, the aggressive and the sensitive and the powerful and the introspective and all those sort of things that 5150 is one of the great capturings of that. I mean, you've got, complete jams that sound like they could be played to your point in the parking lot. But then it's got songs that, you know, the ladies would go to the shows and love to sing along with as well. And without 5150 Van Halen probably just goes down as this sort of guitar party band. And it set up the band for some great work afterwards. I mean, the albums that came after 5150 are, you know, exceptional works until they decided to make that one with Roth in the two thousands, you know, but, um, yeah, it, it's definitely an important album. And for any other reason, like Rush's counterparts, as we described in one of the previous podcasts, without this album, I don't think we're talking about Van Halen. Yep. All right, T, let's do the final cut. Does 5150 belong on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is 5150 in the dreaded for sale bin? What do you think? So often my criteria for this has been you take a very important, very influential top tier band, you know, with a large catalog. And if you look at 
the entire catalog and it's fairly easy to select which album you would pick and take with you and leave the rest behind if you had to then that's got to be an on the turntable and for me that band is van halen that record is 5150 and therefore it's on the turntable for me now they did some great stuff ou812 has got great moments uh for unlawful carnal knowledge has great moments i really as i said earlier dug into the balance record there in the uh, late 90s you know some of the lee roth records some were better than others but obviously there's some great moments in 1984 is outstanding but i'm a van hagar guy admittedly if i had to pick one album it's it would pretty easily be this one and therefore for me it's on the turntable. So big up to Eddie. Thank you, EVH, for all you did for music and all you did for the guitar. And I'm putting this one on the turntable. How about you, Nub? I'm going to put it on the turntable too. And, and, and certainly in tribute to Eddie Van Halen. And, and uh, thanks for capturing that as, as well as you did. But just a, as an album, it's just so good. You know, and I know that sometimes we go into really complex uh, verbiage in terms of how we describe something. but it's just so good. You know, it's got, yeah. it's got two moments on it that you kind of wonder, eh, you know, is it really there? But outside of that, you're talking about an album of virtually all hits. And if it wasn't a hit, it's certainly a Van Halen classic or a beloved track, you know, and, and you've got a song like dreams, which is, is just perfection as we talked about. Um, so how could this album not be on the turntable, even with its very, very minimal flaws? It is a quintessential Van Hagar album. And as we've talked about, see, there's no debate. It's Van Hagar, baby. <laughs> you know, I don't want to hear any debate. Yep. We, we are uh, unapologetic Van Hagar guys, aren't we? We sure are unapologetically. All right, let's be unapologetic about wrapping this thing up and let's go with what is in your head. T, what's in your head? I'm going to take you back to the 80s. I mean, this is an album from 1986, and I figured, why leave the decade at all? So I've got first a, uh, I guess, a, a, a song in a, in a similar genre as far as uh, kind of some of the uh, hair metal that you saw uh, around this time. Uh, but uh, a bunch of ladies known as Vixen and their song Crying, which is a really, really good jam uh, from that era. Again, great keyboard part some great guitars and, and a really good song by Vixen. Uh, one of their, their two big hits. I think their other was edge of a broken heart, I believe. Um, but crying is a real jam. If, uh, if you, uh, have never checked out what those ladies were doing there back in the, uh, back in the eighties, great hair on those gals too. I'll tell you what, when I was a, uh, when I was a young man, I was definitely checking out, uh, what Vixen was up to. Yeah. You were, uh, were you thinking about Vixen at night? I was thinking about Vixen uh, multiple, uh, multiple times. Yeah. Vixen, <laughs> Vixen was an important band for me just from a uh, imagery perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Well, that's a great track from them. The second is by Wang Chung and uh, one of my all time favorite songs from the eighties called let's go oh, um, killer track. Killer. Yeah. Track. Yeah. R- really, really. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking maybe top five best songs of the eighties from a very interesting project. I mean, Wang Chung obviously, you know, did some, had some success and, and had some commercial uh, tracks and um, you know, they were pretty interesting, but let's go is an absolute heater from those guys. And uh, one of my favorites. And the third is from the great Pat Benatar or the song is we belong um, just with a 
excellent groove and a, a, a really cool, unique song at that time. And one that I think holds up extremely well. So that's what's in my head. Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? Pretty good pandemic song here. Uh, Rage Against the Machines, Calm Like a Bomb off of the battle for los angeles kind of one of those more obscure rage songs but one we're checking out it's got some killer tom morello guitar riffing in there a little band that you and i discovered seeing open up for king's x a band called podunk out of texas yes and a song great called, band yeah and a song called in the middle mm, yeah which everyone should check out Right? Great everyone, song. Don't you think everyone should check out Podunk? It's oh, Podunk's things. great. And in the middle, yeah. uh, at the end, when everything fades out except for the strings and the vocals, it's just a really cool way to end that song. And yeah, Dashboard Mary is a great Podunk track. They, they've they've really uh, they were a great band. They only put out a couple of records, but yeah, I remember seeing them open for Kings X. And I mean, I was you know Kings X, one of your favorite bands, and I always liked them you know quite a bit. Not not quite as much as you, but it was always great to see them. But I remember seeing Podunk come out and play five, just five or six songs to open up. And it was like, holy cow, these guys, guys, I mean, they were really good. And and then you listen to their records and you realize that, you know, that wasn't a, just a uh, flash in the pan there on stage that they're a really nice band. That was a a show we caught at the legendary Harpos in Detroit. Mm, Indeed. And then lastly would be uh, the band OSI, which is a, just a spectacular collaboration between Kevin Moore of Dream Theater and Chroma Key and Jim Matheos of Fate's Warning and a song called Cold Call of really the last OSI album. And that stands for Office of Strategic Influence, but really the band just shortened it to OSI. Great band. Everyone should check them out. Hmm. Well, see, we paid a nice tribute, I think, to a, a fallen legend here on episode 16 and uh i appreciate all your thoughts on not just 5150 but van halen and we'll we'll continue to pay tribute to him i think in on our respective turntables and cd players and and airpods uh in the coming days and weeks won't we indeed and you know thanks for bringing it and thanks for you know leading the discussion uh really much appreciated there and yeah the beauty of of losing uh our our rock and roll heroes uh at times is that the uh, the tunes live on, you know. The tunes live on forever, and and I think that uh, the great Eddie and certainly the great Van Halen will have a, a rather eternal aspect to them for those that uh, want to learn more about, you know, the true um, heavyweights of rock and roll. And uh, those guys, and certainly their guitarist, um, fit that category, um, no question. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and see if I could just foreshadow for a minute. I know in our next episode, we're going to have something very special for our audience. Very, very special. We sure do. Episode 17, uh, you know, will be, uh, will be a very, uh, a very cool thing for us. So make sure you tune in next week as well. It will be an adventure and one that everyone might want to escape and join us as a part of. We'll see you for episode 17 very soon. Follow us on our Twitter and our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and wherever else you can find us because two twins in an album are here to bring you all of the best of the best in terms of album reviews. Tonight, we hope you enjoyed our little tribute to Eddie Van Halen. We'll see you next time, guys. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, 
Integrity.